0: The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia.
1: Sufi discourses are heavily criticized by the mainstream of Muslims. Particularly in Islam, the doctrine of divine retribution is essential, that a Muslim is seeking divine justice and wants to be rewarded by God. But that's not the ultimate goal for a Sufi. A Sufi wants to reunite with God, not to be rewarded by God.
2: In terms of interpretations of Sufism that have appeared in a post-9-11 context, you have a real utilisation of Sufism as a political project almost to politicise Sufism as an alternative to political Islam. I mean, is it going to translate into a perfect secular liberal project? I think that's questionable at best.
0: In this episode, Islamic mysticism and how it's regarded by Muslims and the rest of the world. Here to Asia is a podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. With all the attention and media coverage of the Islamic world, there's little mainstream discussion of the mystical side of Islam. Sufism, the word often used for that mystical tradition, may bring to mind at the very least the poetry of Rumi or the whirling dervishes of Turkey. But beyond these simple and, some argue, sanitised stereotypes, Sufi beliefs, practices and institutions span most of the history of Islam and reach across its vast geographic and sectarian expanse. Sufism is popularly described as a more tolerant, open and free branch of Islam that, to Western eyes, serves as a counterbalance to the harder line orthodox portrayals. But are these views missing the point of a mysticism that, according to practitioners, emphasises interior pathways so as to know and merge with the divine? And why is it that Sufi practices are condemned by many in the Muslim world as heretical? To make sense of the complex and often esoteric subject of Sufism, we're joined by Islamic studies researchers Dr. Muhammad Kamal and Dr. Shirin Yasser, both from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Kamal, and welcome, Shirin. Thank you. Thank you. Kamal, let's start with what on the face of it might seem like a very basic question, but in reality I know is far from it. What is Sufism?
1: Sufism should be understood in historical context as it is embedded in the era of political instability, sectarianism and the establishment of religious institutions in the Islamic world. So all these factors contributed to the rise of Sufism and Sufism came as a response to this development in the Islamic world and it was a response to an attempt to politicize religion and legalism in the Islamic world. So it was advocated by some individuals who believe that the core of religion is not politics, power and wealth. The core of religion is a spiritual connection with the Creator or with God. And since we have come from God, we should go back to God.
0: But it's not a sect as such, is it? It's a style of
1: worship. It is not a sect, at least at the beginning, it was not a group, even a sect. It was advocated by certain individuals. For example, the first Sufi we have in history of Islam is Hassan al-Basri, who died in 728. He was from Iraq, and he's the founder of Sufism. And then we have a number of individuals after him, and then those individuals gathered in Baghdad, the capital of the Abbasid dynasty at that time, and they founded the school Of Baghdad, but they were individual Sufis, and gradually in the 12th century, uh, Sufism became a kind of uh, cult, or we call it nowadays Sufi orders. So, we have many Sufi orders in the Islamic world. But tell us about the practice of Sufism. The practice is different from individual to individual, from Sufi order to another, because there is no single practice, but they all focus on spirituality and uh, the purification of the soul in order to reunite with God.
0: But what does that mean? Does that mean that Sufis have the same fundamental practices as other, as other Muslims?
1: This is the question about legalism and religion. As I said, Sufism was a response to legalism in Islam, because in the 8th century, Islam became a well-established religion with different legal schools, different sectarian groups, and different theological perspectives. And it became more ritualistic than spiritualistic. So these Sufis wanted to liberate individuals from ritualism and legalism. And they believed that an individual should be free to communicate with God without being restricted in any kind of religious institutions. For this reason, the Sufis, at least at the beginning, they didn't practice religion the way ordinary Muslims practice religion. For example, Muslims pray five times in a day, but Sufis pray constantly. So in the eyes of mainstream Muslims, Sufis did not practice religion the way it is required
0: because they have a direct relationship with God.
1: With God. And they they have their own methodology, which is very different from ritualism and legalism. And I give you another example. Muslims fast during the month of Ramadan, and that's one month in a year. But the Sufis fast constantly. So they don't need to show people they fast only in one month. Or they don't need to show they are praying five times in a day when they pray constantly. That became very controversial in Islamic history. Shirin, let's bring you
0: in here. Sufism is complex, isn't it? And it's also multidimensional. It's been absorbed
2: by various cultures over the course of history. The quote that resonates with me in an attempt to define Sufism was one made by a pre-modern scholar, Ali Shanji, and he basically says that in its early form, Sufism was a reality without a name, whereas now it is a name without a reality. And this was part of the kind of anxieties that I think Muslims have always had about maintaining the authenticity of something, but also a struggle with defining something, at least in its early stages, that could only kind of be described at a prescriptive level and perhaps in terms of what was most visible in terms of its manifestations. So if you look at some of the kind of manuals that emerged, particularly in the 10th century afterwards where you could say Sufism or Tasawwuf gains a more systematised approach in terms of its principles and its doctrines, an attempt to define them, this tends to be also the focus of these very manuals, what is Tasawwuf? what is Sufism? And you find a predominantly prescriptive approach. So the kind of descriptions you find by, say, an early Sufi figure like Junaid, who represented the sober kind of school of Sufism as opposed to the ecstatic forms, he says that anyone who improves your character is a Sufi. So this is just one example of a very broad prescriptive approach. So in a broad sense, if you think of it, as Islamic spirituality or interiorisation of the faith or mysticism. You could say that it has a family resemblance with spirituality or mysticisms in a kind of broader context, but it also tends to be attached very much to the kind of concrete structures of Islamic history and social practice, and we see it gaining a more and more institutionalised and visible form, particularly after the 11th century when you have the rise of mainstream or institutionalised forms of Sufi orders.
0: Do you agree with Kamal that it is a reaction to the politicisation of religion, that this is about a direct relationship with God? It's not about the architecture around that relationship that a religion builds?
2: It evolves historically, so what it means differs depending on the specific kind of context. When you look at early Sufism, I think you see definitely a kind of undercurrent in terms of the type of ideas and practices that are being expressed as a kind of predominantly an otherworldly approach to faith tradition. And this is, you could say, a countercurrent to the kind of worldly Islam that had become dominant through the, you know, umayyad palaces and the kind of visible or worldly aspects of Islam that had come to dominate in this context.
1: I would like to add something to this point, uh, because Sufism is very relevant when we say it is a response to political instability and sectarianism in Islam. Because what happens, religion has divided people and Sufism comes to unite people. And that's why the Sufis want to bring a new type of theology and metaphysics to reunite humanity, not to divide them. Because religion is always exclusionary. It excludes people regularly. And Sufism is not exclusionary. It has come to include everybody, regardless of colour, faith, gender, ethnicity. And that's why we have great thinkers like or great Sufis like Rumi appealing to everybody in the West and the East. This is very important in Sufi metaphysics and worldview. Just before we get to, to Rumi and to the
0: other, I guess, artistic expressions of Sufism, where do we find Sufis today and how popular is it now?
1: Well, you find Sufis everywhere in the world. They are here in Australia and they are there in the Middle East and different parts of the Muslim world. In fact, Sufism has been a popular religion in the Islamic world and very popular before the rise of political Islam. And with the rise of political Islam or, let's say, Islamic militancy, Sufism in some areas has disappeared or you don't find Sufis anymore in those areas controlled by those militant Muslims because in the views of Islamic militancy, Sufism is heretical movement and it is not part of Islamic tradition.
0: And we will explore that a little later in the podcast. Shirin, is Sufism as prevalent today as it was centuries ago?
2: I think it's probably taken on a kind of global relevance through the increase in print or digital media. So it's potentially even taken on a new face or new manifestations that it previously did not have. Um, in its Indigenous context. So I think that since it has been such a kind of prevalent aspect of Islamic history, then it really makes sense that it would evolve and continue to exist in various forms in a contemporary context. Although there have definitely been tensions in relation to how it has shifted as a concept, um, particularly in modernity.
0: I guess that prevalence in part is because of the artistic expression that you referred to before Kamal. I mean, we mentioned in the introduction to the podcast that Sufism might bring to mind the poetry of Rumi or the whirling dervishes of Turkey. Take us through some of that artistic expression of Sufism and why Sufism lends itself to that. Sufism
1: focuses on the inner experience of human existence with the reality. And it is not relying on sense perception or a rationalistic discourse. It has its own epistemology or religious experience. In that religious experience, when a Sufi is trying to get into trance to reunite with God, and comes out from that experience, it will be very difficult to explain it, to describe it, to interpret it to other people. And the only way to describe it is through poetry or an artistic expression. And to show that mystical experience will be very difficult because it's very subjective. And the Sufis have produced a, a wonderful body of literature to express what they experience in their religious experience. And that's why we have nowadays uh, Sufi literature, Sufi poetry. And then some Sufis use different methodology to get into trance, like playing music and dance and listening to songs or singing themselves like the whirling dervish. Not only them, and other sects also use different musical instruments to get into trance.
0: Of course, the poetry of Rumi is so well known across the world, certainly not just in the Islamic world. Can you give us an example of some of his work?
1: Yeah, I like to read a poem of Rumi. It's very important. Rumi says, What shall I do, O Muslims? I am neither Christian nor Jew, nor Magian, nor Muslim. I am not of the East nor the West, Not of the land, nor of the sea. I am not of this world, nor the next. My place is placeless. My trace is traceless. It's not the body, nor is the soul. For I belong to the soul of my beloved. So this is a beautiful poem by Rumi. I believe he transcends ethnicity, religion, nationalism. And he tries to tell us that Sufism is a universal religion. It is there for everyone, not only for Muslims or for Christians or for for any particular religion. And it is a kind of universalism of Sufi belief and ideology.
0: And yet, can you be a Sufi and not be a Muslim?
1: Well, this is a difficult question because Sufism is considered to be a mystical dimension of the religion of Islam. But why not? If there is one reality and one God and we are all... belong to that reality, so everybody can be a Sufi.
0: It's an interesting question, isn't it, that if you look at the mystical elements of Sufism, how Islamic are they as opposed to universal?
1: As I mentioned before, for me, Sufism historically is Islamic. No one can deny that. But essentially, or philosophically, Sufism goes beyond all religions. Or we may say it has its own theology, which is called Priska theology. And Priska theology is that type of theology which says all religions, all kinds of faith are united or connected by one truth, and that is God. So all of them try to find God and reach God. And this is something universal. And Sufism is focusing on that aspect of human existence and reality. That's why it is essentially or philosophically, it is universal. But of course, historically, it could be particular or you may call it Islamic.
0: You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Islamic studies researchers Dr. Muhammad Kamal and Dr. Shirin Yasser, both from Asia Institute. We're talking about the mystical Islamic tradition of Sufism and how it's practised and perceived today. Kamal, we don't hear a lot about Sufism in terms of contemporary discussion of Islam. Why is that?
1: I think today political Islam has dominated every aspect of life in the Islamic world and in politics and international politics. So political Islam is very much in, in media and it has controlled our debates and intellectual life and that is there for political reasons, of course. And not only mysticism or Sufism, many things are, are marginalised nowadays in the Islamic world. No one is talking about Islamic art, literature, and other aspects of cultural life of Muslims in the Middle East. And even today in what we have is only politics and religion. And these two things have dominated our cultural life. And we don't talk even about Muslim philosophy in the Islamic world or in the world today. And not many people, even at universities, talk about Muslim philosophy. And that's all because of political Islam and the rise of political Islam in the 20th century.
0: Sharon, do you agree that we don't hear much about Sufism and indeed other vital areas of philosophy as well because of the rise of political Islam?
2: I think that could definitely be an interpretation. I think it's also to do with um, if we're speaking about Western media context, then, you know, the kind of Islam that we are most often exposed to is headline Islam, and headline Islam has a specific focus. So I think that when we think about how discourses, you know, shape and construct our realities as opposed to reflecting them then we also might see that as another possible reason as to why there is a kind of focus on specific aspects at the exclusion of the others. Although I think it's also undeniable that there is a kind of rise in what might be considered political or extremist forms of Islam.
0: It's interesting, your point about headline Islam and the view of the West, we'll look at in a minute. But if we look at the issue that, Kamal, you raised earlier, you talked about tensions within the Islamic community over Sufism. And in fact, it is... Severely criticised by some Muslims, isn't it? And it's regularly attacked by extremists. In May this year, a suicide bomber targeted security forces outside the famous Sufi shrine in Lahore in Pakistan. And that is not an
1: irregular occurrence. I think the militant Muslims, we call them jihadists or whatever nowadays, they are not only against Sufism. They are against everything. And against everyone, whoever disagrees with their theology is the enemy of religion for them and the enemy of God. And that's why they attack Sufism, because Sufism disagrees with their interpretation of religion and and theology.
0: Only Uh, to a point, though, isn't it? I mean, where do you see the main sources
1: of disagreement? Is it the devotion to the saints? Is that the main source of... I don't think that is the main thing, but that could be an excuse to attack the Sufis because the theology and metaphysics of Sufism is very different. And as I said, Sufism is trying to universalize faith. And Sufi discourses are heavily criticized by the mainstream of Muslims. The first one is the doctrine of Fana, which is a doctrine uh, advocated by early Sufis and uh, it say that the aim of a Sufi is to reunite with God, to become one with God. And when a Sufi soul is becoming one with God and that's the final stage and that is Fana, the self-annihilation of the Sufi in God. The mainstream of Muslims don't believe in that. They don't believe in the reunion with God because as you know in religion and particularly in Islam, the doctrine of divine Retribution is very essential that uh, a Muslim is seeking divine justice and wants to be rewarded by God. And that's the ultimate goal for a believer. But that's not the ultimate goal for a Sufi. A Sufi wants to reunite with God, not to be rewarded by God. A reward is different from reunification. And that's why we have a Sufi, a female Sufi, Rabia Adawiya, who lived in the 8th century. She believed that we should love God unconditionally not to look for rewards from God. And to love God unconditionally, then you love God for the sake of God, not for the sake of going to paradise. So this is very different from the mainstream belief of uh, Muslims. And the second discourse of Sufi, which has been criticized by the mainstream of Muslims, is the practice of Islamic law. The way they practice Islamic law is very different. As I mentioned before, the Sufis don't show to people they pray five times in a day because they pray constantly. That's the idea.
0: And the devotion to the saints? Tell us about that.
1: Well, it has become a tradition because for Sufis, the saints who are the Sufi masters mainly have some spiritual power and you can seek help from them. And they can be a link between you and God. That's the whole idea. That's why they venerate saints and they visit the tombs of the saints. And that would be considered idolatry? It is considered by some Muslims, not by all Muslims, yeah.
0: And Kamal, how does the the rise of the ultra-conservative Muslims, the Salafis, how does that fit into the tension with Sufism?
1: Before Salafism, we had the rise of Wahhabism in Arabia in the late 18th century.
0: The two are very closely identified, aren't they?
1: Yeah, very close. And so Wahhabism was a puritanical reform movement started in Arabia by Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab to purify Islam from all additional doctrines and beliefs which came into existence after the death of Prophet Muhammad. So whatever came into existence after the death of Prophet Muhammad and whatever was not in the Quran was considered to be heretical and Sufism is part of that heretical tradition. For Wahhabism, Sufism was heretical. It is not there in the original text of Islam and it should be removed From the Islamic tradition. And then Salafism is part of this tradition, this theological debate, which was there by Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. And nowadays we are using Salafism for another group. And they say they are not Wahhabis, but they are not actually, essentially or theologically different from Wahhabism. They also believe that Sufism is not part of the Islamic tradition. It is heretical, and it should be removed from the Islamic culture. That kind of conflict is there. And then you talked about persecution of Sufis i just like to mention that because uh, Sufism was a response to the political development and, and legalism in Islam. Then it was very natural for Sufism to have or to create two rivals for itself. The first rival is the political leadership in the Islamic world, and second is the institution of clergy which came into existence after the death of Prophet Muhammad. So these two institutions were very much against Sufism. And that's why Sufis were persecuted. We had Sufis like Halaj bin Mansur. He was executed or crucified in Baghdad at a public place because of his political opinion as well as his mystical opinions.
0: Sharon, you talked before about headline Islam. And if we look at Sufism from a Western perspective, do you think that the West has oversimplified it, that we can have this mild and acceptable form of Islam versus this more headline Islam? Do you think that it is a false dichotomy has been created in the West?
2: Definitely. When you look at it in terms of interpretations of Sufism that kind of have appeared in a post 9-11 context, particularly in neoconservative think tanks, you have a real utilisation of Sufism as a as a political project, almost, to kind of further, you know, US or Western interests. And I think this can also be problematic when you try to politicise Sufism as an alternative to political Islam. I mean, is it going to translate into a perfect secular liberal project? I think that's questionable at best because it denies the historical complexity and the reality and also the ways in which Sufis were deeply political as well. Um, This is something that you see a lot, particularly in contemporary studies of Sufism, that it's not this kind of apolitical or essentially apolitical phenomenon in all of its historical manifestations. And indeed, that
0: was going to be my next question, Kamal. How how political are Sufis?
1: There have been some groups, uh, some Sufi groups in Islamic history, they were highly politicized against the colonizers. For example, in India, the Naqshbandi Sufi group had a revolt against the British colonization of India. And then in North Africa, we had in Algeria, like Abdul Qadir al-Jazair, he was a mystic, a Sufi himself, and he was leading a revolution against the colonizers. The same thing in in the Sudan, we had the movement of Mahdevi against the British rule. And they were all Sufis uh, because they were fighting against social injustice. But today to say we have Sufis, they have a political agenda and they want to establish a Sufi state or an Islamic Sufi state, it is difficult to find any group like that.
0: But you talk there a lot about colonizers. What about in terms of when you're not talking about a colonizing authority, are they generally accepting of the legitimacy of governments?
1: I don't think there is any Sufi group or any Sufi who has accepted legitimacy of any political authority in Islamic history. And that's why they're very much against the political development of Islam because they believe that religion is not politics. When religion becomes politics, then it's politics. It's not religion. And in order to save religion or spirituality from politics, you have to depoliticize your theology. Their theology, as I said, is Priska theology, is not dealing with the worldly affairs. For a Sufi, political power is not important, wealth and greed are all leading to corruption and they should not be there. So the only way to purify your soul and to reach God and reunite with God is through This process of spirituality and inner purification.
0: So how does that sit with active campaigns against colonizing authorities?
1: Well, maybe that was a historical movement. And when the Sufis saw colonization and social injustice, they wanted to react against it. And they did that. But they are not interested in politics or they don't have a political agenda.
0: So what's the future of Sufism? I mean, you talk there about it in its Western context as well, but also how it changes. It's not one necessarily definable concept. So Shirin, do you see it as having a strong future?
2: Yes, I do. I think that it might evolve in terms of how it has historically existed. So in terms of the more institutionalized forms and this kind of strong emphasis for the tariqa or the order and that relationship between the Sufi master and the disciple, these have kind of been very inherent. And I think these will probably continue in the context in which they have been always existent and always kind of popular. But I think we also see Different modes of Sufism being expressed in global, and specifically with the interplay of kind of technology and how this will affect. Different ways in which um, Sufi ideas might be disseminated that vastly differ from um, how they might have historically been professed. I guess so. That sort of social
0: media, that rise of communications, that also though opens the way for those who criticise Sufism Definitely. to have a stronger it's a voice as well. Sword. So, do you see that that threat to Sufism from within as also growing?
2: Definitely, but I think it has shown a historical resilience. And I think there's no reason to think that wouldn't continue and evolve and adapt in different ways. If we think of it as, in one sense, Islamic spirituality and mysticism, then there's no reason why Muslims would not adapt and navigate and reorientate the ways in which they manifest that in a contemporary context. Kamal, how do you see the future of Sufism?
1: Well, Sufism can challenge political Islam and modernity. But it cannot destroy them. It's not possible to destroy modernity. And then this rise of political Islam, it might stay there for quite some time. But Sufism, as I said, since it doesn't have a political agenda, it will not become a socio-political movement or a kind of alternative. It is an individual attempt to see God and reunite with God. So if a person is seeking God, so maybe Sufism is a proper way to, to adopt it and through that to understand the reality and his own existence. Otherwise, Sufism will not become a popular movement and a dominant Trend in our contemporary time or in future.
0: But it, it can it, remain resilient? I mean, is it, it, it as Shirin suggesting, there's no reason De- to definitely. think it cannot.
1: Definitely. I agree with her completely. And it has been like that all the time. From the 8th century, Sufism has been always there. And it has been the only way for some individuals to seek spiritual salvation.
0: Kamal and Shirin, thank you very much for joining us on Ear to Asia. I think this is an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I do urge people, if you have not get to go and seek out the poetry of Rumi, which is absolutely, truly
1: beautiful. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you. Our guests have been Islamic studies researchers Dr. Mohamed Kamal and Dr. Shirin Yasser, both from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And, of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 11th of June, 2019. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.